Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week in our regular Thursday morning spot at 10.30 a.m. on July 19th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hi, everybody. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. And we are pleased to welcome to the podcast panel, Erin Mershon of Stat News. Welcome, Erin. Good morning. So we also have an interview this week with Jeff Goldsmith, president of Health Futures, Inc. Jeff has been studying and advising about the state of the nation's healthcare system for several decades now, longer than me. And it's a really interesting conversation. But first, the news. There's lots of news from the courts this week. On Monday, a federal appeals court here in Washington, D.C., rejected an attempt by major hospital groups to block the Trump administration from cutting a program called 340B that provides drug discounts. Um, Tell me, what is that program and why is there such a pitched battle over it? Margo. This is kind of like an amazing sort of only in Washington kind of program where essentially Congress wanted to give extra money to hospitals that treat a lot of low-income people who don't have insurance or have Medicaid. So hospitals that treat those people like tend to be more financially strapped, but they didn't actually want to spend the government's money, taxpayer money, to support those hospitals. So instead what they did is they came up with this idea where when those hospitals buy drugs from pharma companies, they get a huge discount on the drugs, but then they can charge the insurance companies for the drugs the normal price. And so essentially the spread between the big discount and the full price that they're paid is a way to give them some supplemental income. And it was initially designed as a program for a relatively small slice of hospitals that and were it's treating... clinics too, right? It's community health centers. Yeah, it's, and... sort of, it's not just hospitals, but it's it's hospitals Most of the and money ends clinics. Hospitals. Mostly hospitals. It's providers who serve people with low income. Um, Over time, uh, both because of legislative changes and also because the hospitals have gotten more clever, uh, it has become a much bigger program where a much larger number of hospitals and clinics qualify for it. And they have found ways to pull in more money by basically getting in the drug sales business. So one thing that we've seen over the last few years, for example, is that these 340B hospitals have acquired oncologist practices. And so oncologists prescribe a lot of chemotherapy drugs. Those are really expensive drugs. So if a really expensive drug, if you're collecting, you know, the difference between a 20% discount and the full price for everyone, then you get a lot more revenue that way. So there has been some concern both on the Hill and uh, in the Trump administration that this is not really what the program was designed to do, that essentially it's just like this big payout for these hospitals and it's becoming a growing number of them and they're finding more and more ways to pull in the money. And so they tried to cut the amount of money that was going to them. And uh, Aaron maybe can talk a little bit more about this court battle, but it seems like it's not over yet. They were basically told, uh, you can't litigate this right now, but it may come back again. Right. They basically said you can't sue. It's too early for you to sue, right? That's what the court said last year. And this is the appeals court this week reaffirming that decision, right? So essentially, the Trump administration proposed last year a pretty major cut to the payments that Medicare would pay out into the 340B program. So instead of paying the full price for drugs, they're going to pay roughly 27 percent less. So the spread the hospitals can sort of take advantage of is less. And co- and the hospitals sued very quickly and very aggressively to push back on that cut. 
the district court said you can't really sue until the cuts take effect. And the appeals court just affirmed that decision. But I think we've already heard from hospital groups that they're ready to uh, refile as soon as they can. So basically, they said that you can't sue now because you haven't been hurt yet. But when you get hurt, come back and let us know. Right. And those cuts took effect January 1st of this year. So arguably, hospitals are, are ready to go. Right. And I think they took that into account because they said you have to have been hurt when you sued. And when they sued, which was before the cuts took effect. Exactly. Um, I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting about the 340B program is it's kind of this obscure thing, like the fact that we call it the 340B program is a sign of how kind of wonky and small it was in its original conception. But it's gotten bigger and bigger. And the lobbying around it has gotten more and more public because this is a really important revenue source for a lot of hospitals. They don't want that revenue cut. And so um, I discovered on my way home last week on the bus, uh, the D.C. bus shelter has a big uh, 340B (laughs) advertisement with a picture of a unicorn. And it says, you know, how often is it that you see a program that doesn't that helps pay for uncompensated care and doesn't cost the federal taxpayer anything. And, you know, so um, it's just it's just it's very funny. I think it's a sign of how much this program has grown, that we have a program with such a funny, obscure name that is now festooned on bus stops in Washington, D.C. Well, trying to it, Right. And it's another it's first of all, it's billions of dollars. I mean, and it, I think that maybe Aaron or Margo remembers, I think it grew two billion in one more year. I mean, it, it's just every time I edit it, there's a bigger number. It's, <laughs> I think it went from like six billion to eight billion in a year or a year oh, and a half or something. I don't I, I may not have the it's details a lot right, of but money. It's, it's a lot and it's growing partly because the oncology. But it's also another D.C. lobbying fight. In this case, it's the drug companies, the drug industry lobby against the hospitals. There's a separate fight going on between the drug industry and the insurers. But this week we're focusing on. But so that's also it's interest groups. It's who's, you know, who's paying those billions, who's benefiting from those billions. And yeah, I saw the the um, signs on a bus stop, too. And I, I thought, think, wow. <laughs> I think it's also important to say that if you talk to the hospitals, they say all this attention is because the pharmaceutical industry is trying to distract from basically any attention on its own list prices or the own problematic practices that it's doing. So they'll tell you, really, there's nothing to see here. This is just pharma trying to create a distraction from what sort of the rest of the conversation that they're having. But an argument that people in pharma make that I think is somewhat persuasive is that the existence of this program and other programs like it that require mandatory discounts off the list price actually can be a little bit distorting because if you're a drug company, you're like, okay, I have this new drug. I want to make this much on it. Um, and you're trying to figure out what is the list price. If you know all these 340B entities are going to get you know 40% off the top and all the Medicaid programs are going to get 22% off the top and then you're going to have to negotiate rebates with all the other payers, it does, I think, create an incentive for the kind of top line price to go up because the number of people who are paying anything close to your listed price becomes smaller. All right, so, so drug prices. We will we will definitely come back to this. Um, in other judicial news this week, the American Congress of Emergency Physicians and the Georgia Medical Association filed suit against insurance company Anthem over a new policy that has the insurance plan retroactively declaring visits to an emergency room a non-emergency and thereby sticking patients with the entire bills. Uh, Margaret, you've written about this recently. What is going on with this? It's so interesting. So Anthem has, for several years now, had the policy in a couple of states where they basically said, you know, we don't want you going to the emergency room for something minor. If you, you know, pull a muscle in your back, you're going to be okay. Like, you should go to a primary care doctor. You're going to get better care, and it's going to cost a lot less money for us, for you, and for the system. And so they sent letters out to everyone, and they said, you know, if you go to the emergency room for something trivial, we are not going to pay. Well, not just trivial. If you go to the emergency room for something that we deem a non-emergency, we're not going to pay. Right. But the way that they they couch it initially is like, don't go for little stuff. 
stuff. And then what it turned out is that last year in these three initial states, they denied about 22,000 emergency room claims, including, according to people that we talked to, uh, you know, claims for things that could have been very serious but turned out not to be. So I interviewed, for example, a man who thought he was having a heart attack. He was having heart palpitations, and he went to the emergency room. And after he got to the emergency room and was evaluated and treated by a doctor, they said, you're having a panic attack. Here's an anti-anxiety drug. You should go to a psychiatrist. Um, and Or a yoga class. <laughs> and Anthem basically said, like, you shouldn't go to the emergency room for a psych- for a panic attack. You should uh, get your panic attack addressed by a primary care doc, by a, a psychiatric professional, by your yoga instructor. But by definition, a panic attack is going to make you think you're having a heart attack. I mean, that's, that's what they do, so, particularly if you've never had one before. If you've had panic attacks and you know how to address them through drugs or breathing, whatever, or your coping <laughs> mechanism. But that first time, I mean, I had a boss, like, years ago who had an um, esophageal spasm, which was stress-induced. But we all thought he was having a heart attack. I mean, he, you know, the ambulance came and we were all worried he was worried. I mean, it's it's this issue of, you know, when it's happening, you don't know. I mean, sometimes there's use of the emergency room for routine things that, that, we, that we would all agree are not ideally dealt with in an emergency room. And it's one reason some hospitals have actually created sort of urgent care or less serious, you know, people are showing up because their kid is, you know, might have strep throat or whatever. Some some hospitals have created sort of a pathway for primary care kind of cases. But you don't know if you're having a really bad stomach ache or appendicitis. You don't know that first panic attack, that it's not a heart attack. You don't know all sorts of things, you know, that turn out to be, sometimes they turn out to be you know, relatively harmless. And sometimes, yeah, you got a brain tumor. I mean, you know. But I mean, Joanne and I lived through, oh my God, how many years of arguing about the Yes, the patient patient bill of rights, which is actually the patient protection part of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which is the full name of the ACA, because they put the entire patient bill of rights into the ACA. So it is now law. And it says that insurers have to pay for things that a quote unquote prudent lay person would deem an emergency. If you have a good reason to think you might be really sick, you go to the emergency room because it's better than being dead. And which, <laughs> here, which raises the question, how is Anthem getting away with this? So, okay, so a couple of things. I mean, the first thing I should say is that a lot of consumer groups are really, really exercised about this policy because, you know, I talked to the American Heart Association and they said, you know, for years we've been, we've spent so much time trying to educate women in particular that the symptoms of a heart attack are not obvious, that if you're having, you know, pain in your arm, if you're, if you're having any of these signs, get to an emergency room right away because if you don't have a heart attack, great. You do have a heart attack. It's really, really valuable to treat it as quickly as possible before you have a lot of damage. And their fear is that this policy, aside from the fact that some people are going to get stuck with bills, like my guy, the guy who had a panic attack, what they're really concerned about is that people who are not sure whether they're having a life-threatening emergency might be dissuaded from going to the emergency room, and then they could end up with disability or death. So in practice, what it looks like is, first of all, that a lot of people who got these bills, appealed them. So there's an appeals process when your claim is denied by your insurance company. You can go back to your insurance company and say, hey, I think you should have paid for this. And a new report that's out from Claire McCaskill's office, she's the Democratic senator from Missouri. She's been investigating this because Missouri is one of the states where the policy was in place. I think Uh, we're supposed to call her the beleaguered Democratic senator. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's now part of her name, yeah. 
so she's with, got a tough re-election what race. What she found well. is that of the appeals, the majority of them were getting overturned. So if you were a patient, you got you went to the emergency room, you got a bill, uh, you got stuck with this bill, and you fought it. Most of the time, Anthem would pay it anyway. Uh, of course, you had to know that you had the right to appeal. You do have to go through this process. And her office argues that it's an unfair burden that's being placed on the patient because if they're reversing most of them, that suggests that they don't have like a very good screening mechanism on the front end. But the other thing that happened is there was quite a lot of political heat when this policy was initially rolled out. And at the beginning of this year, Anthem announced that they were going to have all of these exceptions. They called sort of must-pay exceptions. So if you show up to the emergency room on the weekend, for example, They'll pay no matter what. If it's a child with an emergency and that child is under 15 years old, regardless of what the problem is, they're always going to pay. If you are more than a certain number of miles from an urgent care facility that you could have gone to instead, they'll always pay. If you get an IV drug or fluid in the emergency room, they'll always pay. And on and on. There are all of these exceptions. And what it looks like, we can't be absolutely sure, but what it looks like is that since they have announced these modifications, they essentially are paying all the claims. So they're still telling their patients, don't go to the emergency room for something trivial because we might stick you with a big bill. But in practice, they are paying all of the bills that come in the door. And I think it is a really interesting uh, kind of puzzle to me because they're taking a huge PR hit for this. All the consumer groups are banging on them. The hospitals and doctors are furious because they want to get paid. Um, you know, legislators in some of these states are passing laws to ban the practice. There's now a lawsuit that's been brought by physicians in Georgia uh, to try to have injunctive relief to tell them to take right. this well, policy that, yeah, off the it. books. Um, and I can also see every hospital emergency room now just automatically starting an IV on every patient. <laughs> right. That it creates these, these weird incentives. Whether, whether they need it or not. Right. Um but they are kind of holding firm to the fact that this is their policy. And in fact, they are expanding into more states this year. So at the same time, they kind of added these exceptions. They also have gone into new states. And I spoke yesterday with Jonathan Kolstad, who's an economist at the University of California at Berkeley. And I was like, why would they do this? Why would they tell their patients that they have this policy when actually they're paying all the claims? Why suffer this PR hit for nothing? And he proposed this theory to me that seems somewhat persuasive, which is they're not so worried about the people once they show up in the emergency room paying the bill. But if they can just on the margin discourage people from going in the first place, that's really where the bigger bucks are. And that may be what their motivation is. People yeah. already have disincentives to go to the emergency room to call 911. They're worried about the ambulance costs. They're worried about surprise bills. They're worried about these kinds of rejections. They're worried about their deductibles if they're not, you know. So, so you're already hearing stories about people people being afraid to get care because of the cost. And they're worried about but, surprise bills from doctors right. who don't work for the participating right, hospitals. because it's really, really a, a problem in the, in the emergency room and in the anesthesiology realm. So there are already um, all sorts of, you know, crazy disincentives. I mean, we have, there's disincentives to get the right care and there's incentives to get the wrong care. And it's just, I mean, this is just another... The the emergency room is one of the, or as physicians would call it, the emergency department. If you if you look for the places in healthcare where you can see, to to use our favorite word, you know, the crazy pants incentives in American healthcare, the ER is where you see them all. And I, you know, I feel like I've been writing about this from a couple of different angles. So not just about this policy, but also about surprise bills in the ERs. I just think it, the ER is a place where a lot of the normal kind of incentives and negotiating mechanics break down. 
And so you see just kind of weird and desperate behavior by a lot of the players. You know, they're sort of in a lot of other parts of healthcare, everyone can kind of come to the table. They have they have enough leverage to be able to negotiate with each other in relatively good faith. And I think in the ER, um, it's just very difficult to do that. And so the result is that I think the parties get really frustrated and they try more extreme things in order to uh, you know, either keep their share or reduce their spending. All right. Well, we have we have more court-related news this week. Um, we are starting to get a little more information on exactly what Supreme Court nominee Judge Brett Kavanaugh thinks about the Affordable Care Act. And frankly, at least in his court opinions, it's not really all that much, is it? It's pretty. It seems to be pretty thin uh, background to to look at. Who's looked at all of this? Well, it seems he's he's made a couple of decisions that were somewhat technical. Uh, so he didn't really. Was it in 2011, 2012? He um, made some decisions that it wasn't the right. Uh, was it the mandate? No one had been hurt yet. Was that one of them? Um, it is the Anti-Injunction Act. Yeah, I mean, he used technical no, things. I think it was too. the Anti-Tax Injunction yeah, Act because yeah. they were two different things. <laughs> and yeah. We all and had there were to two learn. cases in which he sort of didn't dissented from. There were two cases where there was a more favorable ruling toward the ACA. He dissented, but he dissented on technical grounds. Um, some conservatives say that the way he did it, using tax law, actually sort of paved the way for the Supreme Court to uphold the uh, mandate as a tax in, in 2012. Um, but do we have a huge record that will tell us how he, other than contraceptive and reproductive health, do we have a huge record that will really show us how he will rule on the, I don't know if we can count how many issues that could come before the Supreme Court, Medicaid work requirements, the big case out of Texas that the Department of Justice has has joined in part. Um, There are a lot of issues in the pipeline. There always are in healthcare. Do, Do we sort of have a gut feeling about what he thinks? We could have a gut feeling because we know he's very conservative. Do we have an informed, detailed assessment of this is how he has ruled? Nope. Well, I think there's also two ways to think about judges and how you want to look at their record. So I think one is the more traditional one, which is what are their le- what's the legal philosophy? How have they ruled on cases re- on related doctrines? And I think as far as that all goes. The case law that he has ruled on already doesn't tell us a whole lot about how he's going to rule on these new health care issues that are coming in the future because they're actually different legal questions. So they're all about health care kind of topically. But, but the regulatory, we know he's been very anti-regulatory. That record is clear. But then there's anti-regulation. I think, you know, when people talk about like, oh, well, he's very conservative and we need to look to his record, I think there's also a view that judges are often sort of uh, more motivated by the outcome than the particular argument. And so to, to the degree we can see signals about what his policy preferences are, I think, as Joanne says, we kind of assume he's conservative. But uh, with the exception of reproductive rights, I think it's a little bit hard to know. So his, you know, on the Affordable Care Act, he would have preserved the Affordable Care Act, but he didn't really get to the, the sort of substance of uh, the question. He just said, well, this case is not ripe yet. Yeah, and I think I, I think I thought that was a really interesting article from Sahil Kapoor in Bloomberg that looked at sort of whether or not the decisions he was making on those grounds were deliberate, sort of an attempt to make sure he was sort of he didn't have a he didn't leave a paper trail he didn't leave a paper trail because he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice and, and sort of we all you know his name has been circulating for years and, right you know you don't if you're a candidate for the Supreme Court you don't try to shoot yourself in the foot or any other place yeah so it was an interesting sort of look at how he walked that fine line between sort of 
choosing the sort of political choice or um, upholding the legal philosophy they think most in the legal community wanted to see. And I thought it, it was a fascinating sort of theory that at least he was sort of playing both sides. One of the more interesting pieces that I read, <clears throat> excuse me, was not healthcare related. It was about uh, his feeling on Chevron, which is right. a very famous Supreme Court case that basically says that um, administration regulations, uh, the interpreting uh you know, congressional, you know, uh, con- but interpreting there's something laws. ambiguous. Right? right. If Yeah, right. If Congress had not made it clear what it wants, then they should defer to the administration as long as it's not basically ridiculous. I think arbitrary and capricious is the, is the legal phrase. Um, and he's apparently not a fan of that, which could mean, you know, on the one hand, striking down a lot of Trump administration regulations, but it could also mean striking down a lot of existing Obama administration regulations and regulations coming from a future president of either party. And it's a real, I mean, it would, one thing it would definitely do, and this is something the Federalist Society likes, is it would give the the federal government, the federal bureaucracy, much less authority to actually shape policy. Um, So that's something. And many of the court, you know, the Medicaid work requirement, that's a, that's a case that's that's about a regulation. And Um, I think that we... I would not, you know, we never know what's going to reach the Supreme Court, but that one seems like a good one. You know, that may well reach the Supreme Court. And the um, Two years King from v. Now, Burwell case, the Affordable Chevron Care Act case right. from a, a few years ago, also dealt with this issue. The Chevron, but it ended up not being key in the ruling. But the idea, that's when everyone was talking about leading up to that, where there was a uh, sort of a very poorly drafted section of, of the ACA. There were other parts of the ACA that seemed to make it clearer. But if you looked at that particular couple of sentences, they were really messy. And, and, and when the opponents of the ACA went to the Supreme Court, went through the court system, reached the Supreme Court, that was a perfect example where there were contradictory, you know, Lines in the law itself. You know, probably the legal term is mushy. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't. If you there was some contradictory stuff. I mean, that what what ended up holding was that the entire they looked instead. The court said, "No, I'm, we're not going to just look at those two sentences. We're going to look at this entire you know hundred whatever how many hundreds of page statutes." And this was the intent. But that was an argument. You know, it could have been handled as a Chevron thing. And that's, um, I think, environmental cases. That's going to be a big deal coming down too. But yeah, healthcare. You know, I mean, we all we all see him as a conservative. There's no, I mean, he sees himself as a conservative. We're not extrapolating anything here. Exactly how that translates when he has to look at a specific case and a specific statute, Supreme Court justices often surprise us. Yet, yeah, we know he's a conservative. We know he's a federalist guy. And we know that he's not going to, you know, all of us around this table and all of our listeners would be surprised if he becomes something else consistently <laughs> on the court. And I'm sure as people dig into the paper trail further, there will, there will be more There'll be some quirks that, and yeah. there'll be some, you know, like a, there's like supposedly a million pages and will you find some case in which he, he's surprised? I will. I expect to be surprised, but is there sort of a, a judicial philosophy and a political philosophy? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, one more on the court front. Um, yesterday, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court upheld Philadelphia's sugared beverage tax. That's kind of the opposite result of what we talked about in California a couple of months ago. Right, Margot? Yeah, so I, I think I, I went through this history recently, but Philadelphia is like one of the first big cities that passed a soda tax. And the American Beverage Association, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, the um, major beverage companies fought this uh, effort. They fought it in the uh, city council unsuccessfully, and then they brought it to the courts and they said it's in violation of uh, state taxing law. And now they've lost. So uh, I think it's just 
you know, Philly soda tax seems like it's here to stay as long as the city council wants to keep it. It's on firm legal ground. It is not on such firm political ground. Uh, the mayor of Philadelphia sort of sold this tax as like this sort of uh, pot of gold that was going to pay for a lot of city priorities, including, importantly, a universal pre-K program. It just looks like it's not really generating enough revenue to do that. And so it, does that mean that it's doing a, its job at deterring people from buying sugared beverages or are they buying them outside the city limits? So there's some evidence of both. It, you would imagine if the soda tax works, the way I mean, the whole goal of the soda tax is to get people to drink fewer sugary beverages, right? It's supposed to by raising the price of the product, it's supposed to discourage people from using it. Similar like to tobacco tax. tax. Right. Yeah. So if the tax is well designed, actually what you would expect is that over time it would generate less and less revenue. What you don't want is for it to just be this annoying thing that people don't even notice. And so you get a lot of money from it. People are still drinking a lot of beverages. That might be good from the perspective of financing uh, pre-K. It wouldn't be so good from the public health perspective. And so there was a big debate at the time that the mayor proposed this uh, bill because he was saying it's like, oh, there's just going to be so much money and the money's just going to keep rolling in. And there actually were some competing models that said, no, like actually the m- revenue is going to decline over time. So the industry says that part of the reason why the numbers are so low is because people are just going outside of city limits and buying at grocery stores there. Uh, there's some competing research from some public health researchers that I think is a little bit more compelling that suggests that while there is some leakage, they actually think that the consumption of sugary beverages has declined in Philadelphia as a result of this tax. But there'll be more and better scholarship in the future, I think. And another issue that will keep going. Um, uh, one more our, for our non-court news. Um, the Sunlight Foundation, which works to make government more transparent, has notified the public of several changes being made to the Health and Human Services website in the past couple of weeks. The biggest is the shutdown of the Medical Guideline Clearinghouse at the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Apparently, that's the result of budget cuts. At least that's what they say. This was a website used by doctors and other health professionals to help them learn best practices for treating a wide array of ailments. Also taken down was information on the Affordable Care Act that used to be available at the Medicaid site and information detailing how the Affordable Care Act prohibits discrimination, including gender discrimination, from the website of the HHS Office of Civil Rights. So the question is, does this suggest some policy change about to take place or is this just HHS getting around to doing things any other opposite party administration would have done a year ago? I mean, we do see, you know, websites being changed and taken down when a, when a new, when a, the other party takes takes over, at least in the times that we've had websites. Well, things have been taken down. Some of the ACA uh, enrollment information was taken down early in 2017. And there were some women's health issues that were taken down, although HHS said they were actually a better version than elsewhere that consumers were actually going to more. So even though they got attention for taking it down on one site, their argument there was the information is updated, better, more accessible somewhere else. So... um, This guidelines, uh, these clinical guidelines is a little different because it's not overtly political. It's not ACA. It's not abortion. It's not anything like that. It's a a research um, resource for a research and practice uh, for physicians. I mean, Margot, before we went on and started taping, Margot was saying she had read a story that I hadn't read that it didn't have that much traffic. I've heard, you know, maybe a, a volume issue that it didn't have a lot of traffic, but to the researchers and doctors who used it, it was quite important. Um, I know that in the um, health policy research world, there's a lot of concern about this, and there is another nonprofit. They've 
people have been trying to archive this information. They're trying to come up with the funding and, and put it at a, a group called ECRI, I believe, is going to host well, it. I believe it, it It actually is more political than you think because well, this the is what, is political. Right. The budget well, is political. This content itself. Well, no, but this right. content w- was the result of uh, when, when the, ARC was first created in the 90s. It had a different name then. It had a different it, name. It had to get destroyed and then recreated. That's right. Because of the back surgeons. I was going to say, they were charged with doing government, they did their own guidelines. They did best practice guidelines. They did a whole bunch of them. And they did one on lower back pain. And the spine surgeons went crazy because it mostly said you shouldn't really do back surgery. Which Many I think back the... surgeries. And there's a ton of other evidence since then saying they're say, right. <laughs> clearly they were right at the time. But that was what almost got the whole agency eliminated. They basically were, re, yes, they were renamed, reconstituted. There was a bipartisan compromise. And they said, okay, you won't do your own guidelines, but you will become the home for everybody else's guidelines. Right. That was how this guideline right. clearing but house. it's not I mean the the idea that these are clinical practice guidelines are not as politically tinged as the as a spinal fight you know when when arc started getting um, the house kept trying to zero it out and the Senate kept saving it for a few years it has not been zeroed out its funds have been significantly cut and this is one of the manifestations of that when they, I think the house zeroed it out again last year the house is no then they kept it but they tried to move it to NIH I think that was last year yeah, think, but you know when they started going after arc again a couple of years ago my first theory having known the history of the, of the spinal surgery it was right after the PSA recommendations that men did not need these prostate um, tests so routinely and that they weren't very good and that the, the government uh, task force had said, you know, skip them in most cases or in many cases. And my first theory, and then they went after ARC. And my theory was, ah, it's the urologist learning from the back surgeons. And then I did, you know, what we call reporting and I found that I was wrong. The urologists were not <laughs> behind it. It was just the House Republicans hate ARC. I think each of these things is a little bit different. The other one that I would keep my eye on, though, is the civil rights stuff. Yeah. So uh, one of the provisions of Obamacare is it said that hospitals and insurance companies can't discriminate against patients on various grounds. And one of them is, they said, based on sex. And the Obama administration interpreted that relatively broadly. They said that it means that hospitals and insurance companies can't discriminate against people on the basis of whether they are transgender or whether they are gay and lesbian. And that is an interpretation of what is meant by sex discrimination that I think is not been universally embraced by the courts. And I think, in fact, there have been some court challenges to this determination. And there have been some indications that the Trump administration wants to change this provision and roll it back a little bit. So hard to know, obviously, exactly what they want to do. But I think that there's a case pending where they have not weighed in because they want to roll. They have not defend. I I think it's if I'm remembering this correctly, we've written about this, but it was a couple months ago. I don't remember all the details. I'm pretty sure there's a case pending that they've just sort of let hang out there, that they, 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 they've they said things that indicate they want to roll back these protections, their, their civil rights, Office of Civil Rights and NHHS. Um, I don't think they have actually yet cut it off officially as a legal position, but, but, but I may I, be out I of just date. would say that the fact that they're taking information about this off the website, yeah. that may not just be the kind of house cleaning that we're seeing in some no, other parts. I think, I think it may be a prelude to a, a different interpretation of what is meant by that part of the ACA. And you, know, you can imagine that gay and transgender rights activists will uh, be engaged when and if that change takes place. We will be watching for it. All right. One last quick topic. Um, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who was on this podcast back in February, has been out and about this week talking about drug prices and generic biologic drugs and lots of other things. And we will talk about that in some more depth next week. But what seems to have caught the public's attention are comments he made at a Politico event on Tuesday about, of all things, milk. Aaron, well, what, we have what, to say what, that it was a, a political event that talked about. We had two reports. We had yeah. a pharmaceutical reporter and an agriculture reporter because those of us 
us who cover health forget that the FDA is also the food. We focus on the drug part. Erin, <laughs> become the the expert on yes. the next, what well, is to come. Food, at least for now, given what the administration has proposed. But yeah, so I think, um, I don't even think his comments were that extensive uh, to sort of bring on the uproar that they have. But I believe he sort of pointed out that almonds do not, in fact, lactate, and that that might have repercussions for whether or not we can describe almond milk as milk. And of course, that's true for lots of other things that we call milk, right? Yeah, we were talking about oat milk and coconut milk. There's all sorts of soy milk. milk. Soy milk. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Rice milk. Yeah, I think there really has, it's brought about, at least in my office, quite a big debate over what should be considered milk. But I think, Julie, we were talking about sort of whether the cat is already out of the bag on this, regardless of what the regulations say. You can go to the grocery store right now and buy quite a few things that call themselves milk very prominently on their packaging. So, you know, what about butter? I was thinking about like peanut butter, you know, like does the same logic apply? Well, well, no, well, I mean, his, no, his point was that in the, regula- in the actual regulation that the FDA, you can't call it milk unless it comes from something that lactate. So it has to be, you know, cow's milk or goat's milk or, you know, that plants do not lactate and therefore you can't call it milk. But my feeling is the lines at Starbucks are already way too long. (laughs) I think it's worth saying, too, on this point that this is an issue that the dairy farmers really do care about. And we've also seen um, Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin sort of Yes, there's a Senate race that's going to hinge on the definition of milk. (laughs) Plus, our trade war with Canada has milk elements, although I don't believe non-lactating almonds are part of that. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see, but more on that next week. All right, that is it for the news this week. Now we will play my interview with Jeff Goldsmith, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Jeff Goldsmith. Jeff is a consultant, futurist, professor, and all-around really smart person in healthcare who is one of the few people who's been doing it longer than I have. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Um, You have been watching the healthcare system for decades. What state is it in compared to what it's looked like over the years? You've sort of seen it go up and down. Um, Well, I think right now it's it's kind of going sideways. Um, I don't hear a lot of fresh thinking in this field, either on the policy side or the management side. I think we're, we're kind of running out a cycle both of policy ideas and concepts and management ideas and concepts that frankly haven't gotten the field very far. So I think we're, we're, in, kind of a, we're in kind of a holding pattern. I think last year was this terrifying um, you know, potential for a trillion dollars in health funding going away, and I think it really paralyzed a lot of folks in, you know, not only in the health insurance and care system, but, you know, pretty much across, across healthcare generally. And I think, you know, people are now in this, this, um, they're in a very tough place operationally. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the health systems that I work at are, are seeing problems that, you know, ordinarily only appear after a recession. But here we are at the top of an economic cycle and people are really struggling. As I recall, you were not a big fan of the Affordable Care Act when it was moving through. Well, no, I loved the idea of expanding coverage, but could we possibly have done it in a more complicated and less user-friendly way? I mean, to me, that was the real problem. I loved the values that were at the heart of the Affordable Care Act, but it was a technocratic festival. And it created something so complicated and with so many moving parts and so fragile that even if the administration that was running it cared about it, it would be tough to keep it going. You mean right now? Absolutely. And and yet, you know, what what could we do instead? What should we be doing instead? Well, you know, I've, I've been a big 
I've been a big advocate of looking for where the biggest problems are and trying to solve them. Um, I think one of the biggest problems is this large population of uninsured baby boomers. The health status of boomers is falling. Um, the death rate for people age 45 to 54, which is now, you know, the, the, the tail end of the boomers is rising. It's crazy to have uninsured people that age. So I'm a big advocate of letting people buy into Medicare at that age. That's politically, of course, right now with, you know, the Republicans in control of, of our health system, probably not, or our whole economy, it's not going to happen. But, you know, what I was talking about today at Alterum's forum was the, you know, the idea that, you know, we expanded coverage in 2015 and by horrible coincidence, the life expectancy fell. And then it fell again in 2016. So two years in a row of declining life expectancy with all these newly covered people, you know, what's up with that? And what I, what I said today in the, the meeting was, I think we're in year four of a, of, of a string of drops in American life expectancy. And yet we're spending $3.6 trillion taking care of people. What are we doing? You know, are, do we really have the faintest idea of how to restore that, you know, every year improvement in people's life chances that we've taken advantage, you know, taken taken for granted for for the better part of 50 years. It's over. So for better or worse, you've been you've been a big user of the healthcare system the last several years. Yep. Um, what what have you learned from being a patient that you didn't know before? Well, you know, the generational transition in Congress has clearly not happened. We've got people in their 70s running things. The generational transition in healthcare management hasn't really happened because a lot of the folks that um, are running hospital systems and health plans and the rest of it are in their, you know, 60s or in some cases early 70s. But nearly all of the people who took care of me were under 40. So the transitions already happened in the care system. And it was stirring how good a job they did. I mean, for all of the, you know, all of the hoopla about, you know, how hard this is and all the pressures, I didn't feel them as a patient. They, they worked together in teams. They were great communicators. They, they had fire in their eyes. They really wanted to help me. I mean, it was really cool. And you got treated at a number of different places, right? I went, I went to different places for different things. Uh, but believe it or not, the best patient experiences of all were the ones that I had right in my own home community. Um, you know, I, I had a, a, I had both of my hips replaced and it was, it, it was a thing of beauty to see how, how well they had worked out exactly what was going to happen to me and the leadership that the surgeon took in making sure that it happened. So I, I came away from using the healthcare system five times in 29 months feeling pretty darned optimistic about the actual delivery of care in the country. So the problem is really just the cost and the way we sort of structure the whole financial part of it. Well, we've got this enormous administrative overburden. I mean, we've got so many people watching other people doing other things and going to meetings. It's the ratio of meeting goers to caregivers that's really um, the, the big problem. There are too many people in meetings. And they're getting in the way of the people that are actually rendering patient care. If you could wave a wand and change one thing about the U.S. healthcare system, what would it be? I think we need to give doctors back a day a week to actually practice medicine. We need to dramatically reduce the kudzu that's grown up around their, around medical practice 
and reduce the absurd amount of documentation that we're asking them to do in order to be value-based or to get paid or whatever it is. And it's not just doctors. I mean, it's the same thing with nurses. When I go and talk to professionals, they're spending less than half their time taking care of patients. And we're worried about a nursing shortage. Well, we've created the nursing shortage by laying all this stuff on them and by forcing them to use tools that are, frankly, 20-year-old IT. We're using Nokia flip phone type technology to run a lot of these places uh, and information technology to run a lot of these places. So that's the one big change I'd make. I was at Aspen a couple of weeks ago and saw Atul Gawande talking about the kinds of things that he's thinking about. And, you know, he wants to look at individual system things, you know, that blood pressure is not well, that if you could, you know, maintain healthy blood pressure, you could, you know, save trillions of dollars in healthcare around the world, not just in the U.S. But what happened, what tends to happen is that those things end up requiring checklists and more ways, sort of more systems for, for people to keep track of them. I mean, what, how do you sort of uh, regularize the idea of everybody should have some you know, bar of quality that they reach and not having them have to jump through a thousand hoops to get there? Well, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, you can't have 700 core measures. <laughs> you need five that really matter. And those are the ones you're going to count on. It's the failure to set priorities that I think is really hurting people. And if Atoll is right, and that's like the one thing we really need to do, well, then let's figure out how to make it really simple for people to do it. Well, that's what I, he This said. is not rocket science. It just requires a certain element of restraint that seems to be absent. It's part of the problem that nobody's in charge. As you point out, everybody's in meetings. Right. Well, that's a, pro- that's a part of it. But I mean, but you've got, you, you've got a policy apparatus. Where did the 700 core measures come from? How did they get blessed and it's somehow embedded in our reporting system? That's the pernicious process. And I mean, it really is like, like you know, uh, cutting vines in your backyard. You got to kill the vines. So do you, you said you were optimistic in terms of, you know, the, the, the actual care delivery. Are you optimistic that, that the U.S. can sort of dig itself out of our dysfunctional health care system? Well, I mean, we can't do simple to save our lives. I mean, that's really the heart of the matter. We, we, we just, we can't do simple to save our lives. And it seems to me, it's almost going to require a generational change. It's going to require 40-somethings to say, you know what, we don't, we, we don't have time for this. Here's the three things we want to do really well. I mean, I think, I mean, it's a sad thing to say. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 70 in October. I've got a lot of energy. I'm still working. But, you know, I really think that the generational change that needs to take place in healthcare management and policy is long overdue. It's not like we have to stop working. But we have to kind of get out of the way and let younger people take a fresh look at all this stuff that we've assembled and say, here's the stuff that's really important. Here's the stuff we shouldn't be doing anymore. And by the way, there's a whole layer of of folks that are kind of making it harder for for clinicians to do what they need to do. And let's find something else for them to do or let them work in another sector. Are you optimistic that there's going to be something in terms of coverage, as you point out, you know, as you started out, there's still a lot of people without health insurance. That that doesn't help a not well-functioning system. Well, I mean, that's where that's where a political system comes in. I mean, if if, you know, if if the current culture of blame and resentment continues in this town and in the country as a whole, going to be really hard to look at folks and say, you know what, there's folks that are really hurting out there right now that need our help and let's help them. Um, what I've been talking with people about, you know, about the political climate is this, this idea of we seems to be shrinking. And if it shrinks enough, 
It doesn't matter that people you don't know about or care about don't have health insurance. It must be their fault. They don't have jobs. Well, what's up with that? You know, as long as we're thinking that way, we're not going to get around to solving this. And so it, there needs to be a fresh breeze blow through our political system in order for us to address this stuff in a meaningful way. I mean, there's no way that, it, that we can handle 30 million people without coverage. It's just not appropriate. But the current political climate is just so hostile and bitter and, and blame-oriented. The idea that there's a subset of people in our country that can blame folks for not having coverage, for not having a job or whatever it is. I mean, that's kind of what's going on right now. And it's really, really unfortunate. On on that note, (laughs) thank you very much, Jeff Goldsmith. And we will talk again soon. Fantastic, Julie. It's great to see you. We are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Joanne, you want to go first this week? Yes. Uh, Adam Cancrin, one of my reporters and colleagues at Politico, has a story that went up this morning. Um, There are are some uh, business lobbies, notably the NFIB, one of the key opponents that brought the Obamacare lawsuit to the Supreme Court. They've been pushing for like 20 years for something called association uh, health plans, which let uh, small businesses pool together to uh, offer health insurance. They and some other groups, retail and restaurant groups, have been pushing for for really since the 90s, I believe. They finally, President Trump has authorized these. They go on sale in September. They they showed up, you know, for the... um... Right. The announcement was made at the NFIB. And guess who doesn't really like them after all? The groups, the NFIB and the other groups lobbying them. And they do not plan on starting them. They think they're not worth the hassle. Now, you could get into a a, a second-tier argument about whether the AHP regulations that the Trump administration wrote are exactly the formulation that these groups were lobbying for. That's really not the point uh, that we're going to stress here. These groups that made it this identifying issue have now said, meh. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Margot. I wanted to uh, talk about an article f- um, from Marshall Allen at ProPublica called Health Insurers Are Vacuuming Up Details About You and It Could Raise Your Rates. Uh, where he talked about all of the ways that health insurance companies have been doing some of this themselves, but also joining forces with other kinds of consumer da- consumer data firms to find out a lot of stuff about their customers. And Can't they just chase fa- check Facebook, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're probably vacuuming it from there, too. And trying to find out, you know, all of these things about you that could influence what, your, what kind of health care needs you're going to need. So, you know, what your shopping habits are, what your voting habits are, uh, where you live, and many, many other like teeny tiny little facts about you. And, you know, we talk a lot about these social determinants of health, that they're really important, that actually um, what dictates your health is often the circumstances of your life, your income, your education, other things like this. And that, you know, maybe it would be advantageous for health insurers to know this because they can figure out how to better target the right kind of care for you given your overall circumstances. But what this article, I think, uh, draws attention to is that in a world in which it is more and more possible for insurance companies to price their products based on the health status of their patients, uh, having them have this much and this detailed information about you uh, could be problematic. Although there was a lot of, there was a considerable amount of academic pushback to this because right now insurance companies can't 
base their what they charge you on uh, on your health status. That was well, one are, of the things that the Affordable Care Act did. Well, so so two things that I will say about that. One is that we are, you know, kind of eagerly awaiting the finalization of this short-term health plan rule. So this is a rule that would allow health plans that don't have to follow any of those Obamacare rules that can exist probably in most US states that would sell people insurance for just under a year, like 364 days of the year, uh, may or may not be renewable and these plans can charge different prices to different people. So the fact that the insurance companies like during the rollout of Obamacare have gotten much more sophisticated about this data modeling could mean that those prices could be even more kind of nuanced and discriminatory than they were before. But I think also, you know, we talked about risk adjustment last week and it's super wheezy. Let's not go too much into it. But, you know, insurance companies in the Obamacare market have to charge the same premium to everyone. Uh, so they kind of based have Based on age. You can have some Based on age and where you live and right. whether you smoke. But you know, if they can get like all of the healthy people to buy their product at their average premium and they don't have to transfer all of that money to an insurance company that got sicker people, there are advantages in that too. And so I, I do think that the more information they can have that and, and the, the better the ability they have to sort of target their plan towards people that they think are going to cost less money, especially if it's something subtle that might not be picked up in a risk adjustment formula. If it's something having to do with their you know consumer tastes or something, it's not necessarily going to show up in like an obvious healthcare bill right away. Uh, I think it could allow some kind of sophisticated cherry picking, uh, which we haven't really seen before. Well, it's a really cool story. Erin. Um, so I wanted to highlight a story that's, a, I think, a joint collaboration between the Center for Public Integrity, two reporters there named Liz Esley White and Joe Urardi, and NPR's Allison Kojak. And it's called Patients' Drug Options Under Medicaid, Heavily Influenced by Drug Makers. And it's just a really thorough investigation of these sort of little-known committees in state that sort of influence the drugs that state Medicaid agencies sort of put on their preferred lists or sort of treat more favorably. Um, and it looks into all of the lobbying from drug makers to make sure that their products are treated well, including sort of payments to doctors for speeches, I think free dinners, consulting gigs. And they sort of go through state by state and committee by committee and look at how much influence these drug makers have, where the money is going, um, and sort of what that means for state budgets. I really recommend it. Uh, mine is from The Atlantic by Alda Kazan. It's called Illegal Abortion Will Mean Abortion by Mail or What to Expect When You're Expecting Your Abortifacient Pill Delivery. It's a pretty good roundup of what abortion rights advocates have been talking about pretty much since Justice Anthony Kennedy announced his retirement from the Supreme Court that if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion won't go to the back alley. It will go to the mail with women ordering abortion pills that may or may not be what they end up getting and may or may not come with instructions or safety information. So there's a pretty organized movement right now to make mail order abortion pills safer and more standardized, which is obviously considered highly controversial. But also in a lot of ways, it seems an acknowledgement not just that Roe is at serious risk, but that abortion is already almost unavailable in pretty wide swaths of the U.S. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kinnan. At E.E. Mershon. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.